one of the challenges with a catchphrase like patient and family engagement is that it can seem rather generic or so broad no one is really certain what patient and family engagement entails. Fortunately, some years into this work now, there's a lot more to go on, a lot more experience, a lot more actors, more evidence of what true engagement may look like, and the impact partnerships between healthcare and patients and families can have on quality and safety. Also, we have a much clearer idea of what roles everyone can play to move this agenda forward. The National Patient Safety Foundation's Lucian Leap Institute has a new white paper out that reflects all of this deepening knowledge and commitment and more. We're going to talk about what the creators of this report came up with and take some stock of what's working and what's still hard on this edition of WIHI. And welcome to WIHI, an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. This month is our fifth anniversary of coming to you biweekly and also for later listening via IHI.org and on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. There really is something for everyone to be working on according to the authors of, and here's the title, Safety is Personal, Partnering with Patients and Families for the Safest Care. This is true whether we're talking about leaders, staff and clinicians, policymakers, or patients and families themselves. And most exciting of all, there doesn't seem to be any turning back. The momentum is just that strong. Reminder, if you like to use Twitter, you can tweet during or after today's program. Thanks for using at the IHI in your tweets, and that way we can bring others from the improvement community who follow IHI on Twitter into the conversation. And what's the handle for Dissolution Leap Institute NPSF have a Twitter handle? All right, we'll figure that out maybe during the program. So just wanted to make sure. I'm going to now briefly introduce our guests and a reminder that longer bios are also on the WIHI web pages and on um, the slides that we provide during the show that you can later download. I'm very excited because everyone's here in the studio. So that's, that doesn't happen very often and uh, appreciate uh, that people could make the time. And you'll notice that Vicki Minden, as you look on the chat and see all the wonderful locations you've all tuned in from, uh, do uh, make a note of the fact that uh, we have a wonderful resource to draw on today, Safety is Personal, Partnering with Patients and Families for the Safest Care, just out or recently out from the Lucian Leap Institute, and we provided a link in the chat, and we'll do so periodically through the program so you can uh, take a look. We also provided that in our material for... I'm blocking this out. Oh, dear me. Okay, got a little cue in here. Sorry. All right, let me now uh, introduce our guests. Uh, First of all, Tejal Gandhi is president of the National Patient Safety Foundation and the Lucian Leap Institute. Dr. Gandhi was formerly the executive director of quality and safety at Brigham and Women's Hospital in Boston and chief quality and safety officer at Partners Healthcare. Welcome. Thank you. Maureen Bisignano is sitting right across from me. She is our president and CEO of the Institute. Institute for Healthcare Improvement. Maureen's a prominent authority on improving healthcare system systems and advises staff and healthcare leaders all over the world on how to be tireless advocates for change. Glad you're here, Maureen. Thank you. Welcome all. All right. Susan Edgman Levitan is also here in the studio. She's executive director of the John D. Stokel Center for Primary Care Innovation at Massachusetts General Hospital. Prior to coming to MGH, she was the founding president of the Picker Institute and has an impressive track record over many years of deepening everyone's understanding of the patient's perspective on healthcare. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, ma'am. All right, and last but of course not least, to my left elbow here is Linda Kenny. She's the Executive Director and President of MITS, which stands for Medically Induced Trauma Support Services. This is an organization she founded in 2002 as the result of a personal experience with a near-fatal medical event. Linda turned this into a groundbreaking opportunity to shed healing light on the needs of patients and providers alike when bad things happen. Welcome, Linda. Thank you, Max. Good to be here. All right, great. Well, I'm going to start off with Tejal um, and uh, just to kind of help set the scene. Um, there's a lot of work going on in healthcare with patients and families, and I'm wondering in convening the roundtable, which led to the report, uh, which is fairly comprehensive. Um, 
it's it's quite uh, thorough in in what it's trying to say. This is the scope of what the work is uh, could can look like. And I'm wondering, did you have a particular audience in mind? Anyone? Anything you're trying to influence at this stage? Sure. Thanks. Um, well, and just to give a little background on the NPSF Solution Leap Institute, the goal of the institute is really to convene experts from around the country to talk about some kind of cutting-edge um, areas in patient safety where we would like to see more uh, work and emphasis occurring. And so uh, the LEAP Institute is focused on what has been called the transforming concepts over the past several years and has produced these kinds of white papers on topics such as reforming medical education, joy and meaning in the workplace, and now this particular um, report on patient engagement. And the report is quite comprehensive, uh, is the result of multiple roundtables with experts, including uh, patients and patient advocates, as well as uh, healthcare experts from around uh, the country to talk about um, uh, what the issue is, in this case, again, patient engagement. So I think the purpose of the white paper, there's multiple purposes and multiple audiences that we're trying to reach. For sure, we're trying to reach policymakers and healthcare leaders to really make a statement that this is an important area for us to um, put work into to advance patient safety. So I think that's a very key audience. Another key audience is uh, the frontline workers and trying to bring this issue to their attention and give them some tools and ideas about how to better engage with patients at the front lines. Uh, third is um, patients themselves, and although that wasn't, I would say, the primary audience, there are recommendations in the report about what patients themselves can do. And, you know, our intent here was not to necessarily reinvent the wheel. We know there's lots of activity going on around patient engagement, but it was to synthesize and bring that all together, again, to help draw more attention and hopefully have more work that will continue to go on in this space. Okay, very good. Thank you very much. All right, let me turn next to uh, Susan um, Edgman-Levitan and um, start this off by saying, so you've been framing and outlining and refining and giving kind of life and breadth to the meaning of patient-centered care and patient and family engagement for quite some time. And I'm curious um, if you might be able to just kind of give us some highlights of some of the recommendations and maybe point out some things that you think are particularly noteworthy uh, in terms of where we are right now. Thanks, Susan. Um, I think, excuse me. I think that um, there were several things that we learned in the course of conducting the roundtables and hearing from lots of different audiences about this issue. And I think that, in in my mind, patient engagement and patient-centered care are related but somewhat distinct areas to think about. And I, I really like thinking about engaging patients and families in care because it, I think, signals more where this work has gone, which which is really about having very clear, effective, really robust partnerships with patients and families in the design of care, in the work that we're doing around process improvement, and everything else that we need to do to really support and help people manage their own health care conditions and manage their ability to coordinate their care and get the care they need. And so I think that's where this field is moving. Um, The levels of engagement graphic that um, people may see is something that was actually developed for the World Innovation Symposium in Healthcare. And we did this to really try to reflect that there are multiple levels of engagement at the community level, in the in the receiving and delivering of direct care, around organizational design and, co- and governance, and then around how we set our policies for healthcare, regardless of where you live or receive care. And research in all of those areas is very essential, as well as the other thing I think that was something that has come out a lot in in the past couple of years that we tried to call attention to in the Safety is Personal report is the need that all of us have for learning new skill sets. Um, Robert Johnstone from the UK um, talks about how clinicians need to get off their pedestals and patients need to get off their knees, and I think that's the quickest way um, to kind of describe how we all need to come together in a different way. But in order to do that, we need new skill sets. I think some of the things that um, came out of the roundtable that signal some of the areas that we really have to focus on here is 
in all of the discussions with the roundtable participants, what came became very, very clear is how incredibly difficult it is to speak up for yourself or advocate for yourself when you're in the middle of receiving care. It's very scary. We forget that people are sick. And it, at some points we joke that this report should be called the Listen Up report for leadership about the things that they need to be doing because the burden of responsibility really falls in large part to clinicians and the leaders of, of healthcare systems because there's only so much you can do as a patient or a family member. Um, so I think those are some of the things that came out. For the recommendations, um, we think it's critical that leaders of healthcare organizations, and one side comment I'd like to make is that this report's recommendations were designed to be applied to every setting of the healthcare system, not just hospitals, not just large health systems, but it doesn't matter whether you're running a nursing home, a home health care agency, a dialysis center. You need to be thinking about how you involve patients and families in the design of care, how they're sitting on your important quality committees, your safety committees, um, how they are woven through every policy and um, you know decision-making in the organization. So I think that was something that was very important. I also think that we felt it was incredibly important for leaders to identify who are the consumer organizations and the patient safety advocacy groups in their communities with whom they should be partnering and working much more closely with and learning from and also having at the table. Um, so I think those are some of the most important things um, for leaders. We also know that um, clinicians, all healthcare professionals and everyone working in the healthcare setting is going to need a new skill set so they know how to be welcoming and positive receptor sites when patients and family ask questions, when they take notes, and not become defensive and view that as threatening. Um, I think we also know that um, learning how to actively involve patients in decision-making about their care, their treatment options, their diagnostic options, all sorts of things, that is an entirely new skill set for most clinicians. Um, really understanding how you effectively understand what someone's values and preferences are, what matters to them, and then how you address those. I think another area that surfaced um, that we know we need to do a lot more um, education about is that, um, unfortunately, most of us never get the training we need to really know how to communicate about risks and benefits. And risk communication is incredibly important. And how we do that in a way that patients and families consistently understand what their, what their options are that's accurate um, is also a critical skill set, I think. On the patient side, one of the things that we, um, we learned, we reviewed a lot of the recommendations that many, many organizations, including the National Patient Safety Foundation, have developed for patients and families to encourage them and teach them how to get safer care. And most of those are about five times too long for anyone to remember. Most of those are asking people to do things that probably don't have much evidence behind their value and that also in some instances are very frightening and scary for a patient to do. And so we think that we, this is an area for research and I would encourage everyone um, who's listening in today to think about how you can partner with your patients and families to develop a set of recommendations that are right for them and that they are willing to do. So we came up with a very short list that everyone participating in the roundtable agreed with, such as ask questions. Keep asking questions until you really understand the answers you're getting. Know who's in charge of your care. Always bring someone with you if you can. Um, most of us, even if it's a routine visit, are nervous about everything from can we find a parking spot to are we going to hear some bad news. And so things go in one ear and out the other. So have another set of eyes and ears there. And we also think that it's very, very important to understand how to expect getting your test results and things like that so you know what to look for, you know where you can find the information on your own if that's possible. Um, but that's a very short list. And that was something that the um, consumer advocates that participated in the roundtable really, really emphasized as a very, very important recommendation. Don't give us 25 things to do. Mm -hmm. Give us five. 
Um, so I think that those are some of the, okay. the major recommendations and things we've learned in the roundtable. All right. Well, that's a great, um, that's a lot. And a reminder, the link is here. You can always, uh, folks can take a, a look at the report. Um, I want to turn now to Linda Kenny, um, part of the roundtable, um, working on this uh, from many perspectives, but including uh, at the head of MITS, um, and I'm sort of, which is very much focused on helping patients and providers in the event of an adverse event. So I'm kind of curious for you, at some level, you think about this report and you hope, boy, this is the way to prevent all these bad things from happening, but bad things happen too. Um, so I wonder, um, I don't know, what's, how, do, how do you sort of think about the value of, of the process you went through and maybe the document that's emerged? Um. I thought I thought it was it was great. Um, you know, we all had a story in the room. What they, you know, people worked inside of healthcare or or didn't, or whether we were, um, you know, part of the community or not. Everybody had a story. That was what was fascinating and not surprising. But um, actually, you stole my line because I love what that gentleman said. Clinicians need to step, you know, yeah. step off their pedestals, and, and patients need to get off their knees. And, and that that was brilliant. Um, what, what I learned from it, it, well, what I thought was great was you acknowledged, we acknowledged, and that was pretty uh, prevalent in the rooms uh, when we got together, was the emotional, when something does go wrong, that emotional harm that, that nobody's addressing. So I thought that was great. But, and I'm, I, you know, I saw the, I see the list of recommendations, I agree with them, but I'm also a patient that in 99 did all that, had my, you know, the, you know, I did all the things I was supposed to as a patient, and something still went wrong. And, mm-hmm. and that's where I think we have to make sure we don't um, set the intention to patients. If you do all this, you're going to be fine. You can protect yourself. It's, it's. We are vulnerable. Uh, Sue was right. We are absolutely vulnerable and emotionally compromised when we are patients. And it doesn't matter, you know, Maureen, as the CEO, when it's your family member, there's something different um, for all of us. So what... What I like is that we put it back on healthcare. It's like you have to design the systems and involve patients and everything. You know, even in MITS, you know, even though I started out as a patient, uh, now I'm a leader of an organization, we have to bring patients in to kind of help us frame our work because I can't be in that role as the head of MITS. So we're always learning some things we don't want to know. <laughs> but um, unfortunately, but what, what I really like is the fact that... Um, that everybody's voice was heard, and that um, we we spent well, how many hours on just the definition for patient engagement because it is the buzzword and, mm-hmm, and all that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, I, and I think every organization that that takes this journey with patients will just be set up for success. In every you think of Dana Farber Cancer Institute, we'll use that one as an example. Was successful in that. Great. So I thought it was a great, and by the way, I just want you to know there's been a lot of controversy on how many patients were at the table, how many weren't, and honestly... As part of this process? As part of this process. Okay. And I just want to say that um, I thought the number was wonderful. Not only even the people that worked um, inside of health yet, a lot of them that were brought in actually did patient family work with their um, organizations, so they brought that experience. So I thought it was well-rounded. I didn't feel like we were, um, uh, you know, um, underwhelmed as the patients and families in the room, so I just want to put that out there. Okay, thank you very much. Appreciate it, Linda. Um, Maureen Bisignano, um, challenges, and uh, I think Linda's alluding to the fact that kind of uh, when it's your family and family members, we all of us sort of see where the rubber meets the road. And um, you've had you've had journeys with family members that have really pointed out some things. So we thought we might start with that and then maybe get into what some of the challenges are right now. Thank you. And I do think that, um, it, you know, as Linda was saying, that we all have stories. And uh, people will often ask me why I'm so passionate about patient safety and about trying to transform culture. And I have many stories, but I'll just tell you one quick one this afternoon, and that is um, the story of my nephew, Robbie. 
um, I'm the oldest of nine kids in a big Irish family. And so when everybody comes to my house like they did at Easter a few weeks ago, there are about 45 people in my immediate family. Um, but there should be one more, and that was Robbie. Uh, he was the first to be born to my sister, first of the grandchildren. And when he was two months old, he went for his checkup, and the doctor said he was perfect, developing uh, absolutely normally, and he was the cutest thing you could ever imagine and very doted on by all of us. Um, at the end of the visit, the doctor gave him his DPT vaccination, and my sister, who's not in healthcare, brought him home and immediately noticed that he was having trouble breathing, and she brought him back to the doctor's office, and he ended up in the intensive care unit for a week, and he nearly died. Um, at the end of um, his hospitalization, though, he began to get much better, and really, we found old Robbie was back within about a month. Um, he was, again, perfectly uh, normal, developing as we would hope, and um, very spoiled. And um, when he went in for his four-month checkup, um, the, at the end the, of the visit, the doctor said, I'm going to give him his DPT vaccine. And the and my sister said, but don't you remember what happened last time? And he looked quizzical, and she said he ended up going back to the hospital and he couldn't breathe. And, and my sister said... Um, you know, I th I'm sure it was related to the shot because his legs swelled and the doctor thought for a minute and he said it really had nothing to do with the shot. And then he paused for a moment and then he said, I'll only give him half a dose. And he gave him half a dose and Robbie died within 24 hours. And so my sister uh, asked me three questions that really changed my career in healthcare. The first one, she said, is why do you keep all of Robbie's records separately? Why does the doctor's office not have the record of his hospitalization? And why does the hospital not know what happened in the doctor's office? The second question she asked me was, how did he not know that he shouldn't do that? Because the standards had changed. She looked it up after this happened, um, and, and she said it, it isn't the standard of care, and yet that's how he was practicing. And the third thing she said, which really profoundly changed me, is she said, why didn't he listen to me? And that, those three questions really um, I took on as my career's work. But I have subsequently um, seen that I'm, our family's not alone, that this happens all the time. And as we've been saying this afternoon, I think there's a very big burden, a barrier that we've got to overcome, which is changing the culture of healthcare. And it's our job to do it. I think um, there's lots of work that I could do with my sister, but really it's our job to change the culture. And you see here the barriers. Um, it's understanding the terms of engagement and safety and um, health literacy problems. And I actually believe that health literacy is a problem on both sides. Mm -hmm. I mean, patients might not understand when we talk in medical lease, but we don't understand when my sister is saying, don't you remember what happened the last time? And so I do think that these barriers represent a kind of a work plan for leaders. Um, last year I had um, the opportunity to work with Don Berwick and others uh, in reviewing some tragedies in England, at, in mid-Staffordshire, and what we found there is the same thing. Patients and family members complaining very vocally and articulately about safe problems, safety problems, and they couldn't be heard. And we heard staff members, doctors and nurses, trying to make this known to the senior leaders, and the senior leaders couldn't see. So I believe that we've got a leadership challenge, and that is closing the gap between the front office and the front line. Um, recently talking to one of our our um, co-op students here at IHI who just um, got out of the military, and I was telling him how hard it is sometimes for people to be heard, and he was explaining that there's a tool that they use in the military called requesting mast, and that's when um, somebody on the front line can't be heard, and they can request mast, which means go all the way up to the top of the chain of command and get someone to pay attention, and it's that person's job to absolutely hear and respond, and I do think in healthcare that we need to adopt requesting mast. 
thank you. That's quite uh, a, a powerful uh, image um, as well. Thanks, Maureen. Um, John, put up this one that says patient's top three concerns. Um, Can I add something? Oh, oh sure, do, please. Well, well, go well, ahead. She's doing, well, go she's ahead. Doing that. Yeah, go yes. ahead, Linda. Maureen, when you said that, you know, we call it health literacy, but, you know, on a basic level, isn't it just communication and being aware how... You know, how I communicate with my child versus how I communicate with you is going to be very different. It's, it, I see it as more basic than literacy. It's, it's how do you communicate what you need to communicate mm-hmm. to who the person is in front of you. Right. And making sure they're really understanding what exactly, you're mm-hmm. exactly. But I think also, I mean, I I work at Mass General, and I see students in clinical situations where, if they're not using Latin terminology, which no one understands, but people <laughs> in healthcare, or if you, unless you went to Catholic school, um, or Latin, yeah, <laughs> or or Rome, right? <laughs> um, they get in trouble. And so they are, they are intentionally being taught to communicate in a very opaque way um, and use terminology that most people don't have a clue what they're hearing. So I think that's just an example of the culture change. One of the other, I, I want to make a comment about something that Maureen said because um, David Lawrence, who's the former CEO of Kaiser, has recently written a book about leadership um, that focuses on his career at Kaiser. And one of the points that he makes that we tried to incorporate into the white paper, which I have really come to believe um, is something we really need to be thinking about, is that in the realm of patient safety, and quality, we know enough now about what works and what we need to be doing and that if a leader, even if they're not a clinician leader, is not making sure that those things are happening, then they are complicit when there is when an error occurs because it's their responsibility to provide the training, the resources, and the leadership to get everyone on board with implementing safe practices. Um, and I don't think that's necessarily how a lot of leaders view their job. But I think that is something, I think that is a way they need to be viewing their jobs. <laughs> Thank you. I do think that a lot of leaders have moved away from quality assurance right. to thinking that their job is only improvement. And I do believe they need to assure quality. Mm-hmm. They need to assure safety. That means you can't do that by looking at a report. You can right. only do that by walking on the floor, by talking to patients, by looking at uh, is the equipment safe, is it there, is it functioning? Are the nurses going crazy? Are the doctors uh, there when they're needed to be? That's assurance, and it needs to be a safety system that is assurance as well as improvement and innovation. May I tell a story about Maureen? Uh, <laughs> oh, wait. Sure. Yes. Yes. May I give that permission? <laughs> yes. This is a good one. Um, the, I don't even remember where we were. This was like when dinosaurs walked the earth um, for us. And I was at a meeting, and Maureen gave a talk about what got you into healthcare and what got you into quality improvement. And you talked about an experience you had when you were the CEO of a respiratory, I think, a rehab hospital in Boston, and was getting reports about hospital-acquired infections from Brent James and saw that you were kind of average. And at first thought, I'm just telling it the way I remember, thought, oh, that's okay, we're average, that's good. And then you went out and you talked with a patient who had gotten an infection while she was in your hospital, and she had missed her daughter's wedding. And that is an example of what happens when we start partnering with patients, and that changed you. And you actually, I mean, when you told the story, you said, it is not at all okay to be average, and I am infecting people as the CEO as much as that frontline staff person might be if they're not washing their hands because I'm not doing something about this. And if I remember correctly, you started having all of your staff personally interview people who got infections or had other safety experiences, and that's how you change the culture. Mm -hmm when you really understand the impact that this has on people that is often invisible to us, even when we're directly taking care of them. Mm -hmm. And then I went to the CFO and said, and by the way, when we decide to infect somebody, instead of doing it the regular way, how much more does it cost? (laughs) So I think the the human story and the cost of it is a very powerful driver for executives. My my daughter's a senior in high school, and um, 
she went to a Larry Ty event with me recently because I was unable to drive, so she's been my chauffeur. And Former uh, science medical writer for the uh, Boston Globe, Larry, author. Yes, yes, right. yes. yes. and, and he, he was a good friend of Betsy Lehman, right. who mm-hmm. had the incident at Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. I see, I feel like we are having a conversation, and there aren't people listening. <laughs> um, so, We're going to get to uh, chat questions in just a minute. So, Go ahead, Linda. Uh, I just wanted to say, you know, she went to this dinner, and then after that dinner, she, the next day she went to her English teacher and said, can I... Um, changed the topic of my paper, her senior um, paper, and she's going to do it on patient safety. So she's been reading, and, and she said to me after I, she's been reading a lot of things, she goes, I think they need to change the culture. How come the ch- culture hasn't changed? <laughs> so this is an 18-year-old that just started to read some things. and So if an 18-year-old can figure it's it out. Yeah. Right. Well, this is um, great. And I see it's this is what happens when we all also get into the same studio. So we're watching your comments as well on the chat. And thank you uh, for your already, you know, having a interesting uh, conversation about communication, uh, leadership. Um, somebody said the problem is when doctors get indignant about us questioning them. And I, I do, I think we should all sort of draw circles around some of these things that are cultural, attitudinal, that have to do with training, and what does it mean to build a receptive uh, environment. And um, all the um, empowerment of patients and families in the world runs amok um, when, you know, and as you were saying, Susan, before, also when people are the most vulnerable, sometimes, you know, it's hard for us to, to fight for ourselves when somebody uh, doesn't seem terribly interested. So um, the mask, yes. Uh, <laughs> by the way, the ship's mask. Requesting mask is really, I need to, you know, it's like going to the top, right, at the head. So people had asked about that. John, it looks like everybody has mostly figured out uh, chat and how to ask questions or comments, but maybe just one or two reminders there. Yes, for those asking, we are trying to find out what uh, mass stands for. Um, there are it's the a ship's mass. The ship's mass. Right, but it's a military right acronym. It's an acronym, so there is a... It's, uh, not a, it's the actual mass. Is it the actual mass? It's the actual mass. Yeah, well, it's running at the flag. It's because yeah. we it's all think that. Yet. They don't have an acronym. <laughs> <laughs> it's the military. They have a lot, have of, a lot acronyms, of acronyms. Right, so yeah. we're trying to find that out. But if you have any non-mass-related questions, <laughs> please make sure that it's addressed to all participants in the chat. Right, a mass is a mast. Okay, as uh, <laughs> someone I'm familiar with uh, has just written in there. All right. Well, listen. Let's uh, let's get to some of your questions and concerns um, and comments. The title of the book by David Lawrence. Um, we could maybe tee that up and look that up for you and get it into uh, chat uh, from KP. And uh, happy to do that. So listen, we've got an amazing panel here, folks. So I'd love it if you, uh, even as we're continuing to talk about a mast, <laughs> if we could. Um, Go ahead and ask some questions um, of our guests and our experts here. And um, please tell people that the person they take to the hospital needs to be helpful and not just a person. (laughs) This can cause problems at the bedside. So skill sets for everyone. That's right. You don't just need any old person, and I I can appreciate that. Actually, that's a great comment because the first time I took my husband back after my first event, he was no good to me. He was emotionally compromised himself, so I needed to next appointment take somebody else who could be my advocate and 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 hear what I couldn't hear because he was clearly useless. And there are tools out there. You know, here are the questions you should be asking. Take your you know medication list with you. Take your problem list with you. Have you know uh, your your caregiver come with you. All of that. There's tools for caregivers, etc. So I think that is an important piece. And you know, going to the appointment with with those questions at the ready. So I just want to throw at you. I did go back to an appointment with my list because I had just gotten discharged from the hospital last year because um, I was having complications after being discharged. And uh, as I handed the list and I made sure I printed it, and it actually came from the hospital, my new medications, it was thrown back at me saying, I can't take that because it came from another hospital. And I, and I thought, okay, I'm, I can handle this well because I'm in this space. However, what you did was so wrong on so many levels. What if I was just Joe Schmo who didn't know any better? Mm-hmm. And you've just made my speaking up for myself and, and thinking I'm partnering with my care to help you. You've just destroyed it. So what what do we do when a patient is... Yeah, I'll ask you, Susan and, and Tasia. Well, and I think it's a great point, too. I mean, we've, we've seen many a story of, of, of even 
physicians who you think would be the most able to ask questions of their doctors, and they don't. Mm -hmm. And so to the point about culture, I mean, the physicians are worried that people are going to get mad at them for asking questions. So, uh, and lots of examples of that. So, I mean, it really is the cultural aspect and training the providers to be willing to accept that partnership. And I just think that we have not... Um, given people the skill sets to do that and to train them on how to do it. And so the, you know, the Maureen and your barriers slide about, you know, being labeled as difficult or, you know, problematic. I mean, all of that is ingrained in the culture and that needs to change. So it's got to start, you know, from medical school on up, but you can't just start in medical school. You have to get all the folks that are already out there practicing. So there's going to need to be, I think, significant changes to sort of ongoing continuing education and all those kinds of things to really have people be accepting of this kind of partnership? Because I agree with you, it often doesn't happen. Let me just, um, I, I, Susan's raising her hand, but I do want to, let's quickly, Susan, let me get to a couple questions here. Yeah, do you want to uh, just weigh in on this? I just wanted to weigh yeah. in on this briefly. I think part of the problem is that as professionals, we are taught that we're supposed to know everything. Right. And many, many, many times we are asked things that we don't know the answer to, and no one has ever taught us how to say, I don't know, I'll find it. Let's work together to find the answer. And in the work that I've been involved in over the years with implementing and promoting patient and family-centered care, when there's staff resistance, what we almost always have found at the root of it is that people really don't know how to have these kinds of conversations and they don't feel safe right. doing it. They're afraid they're going to lose their job if they say, I don't know. Right. So well, some of the, thank you, um, so some of the questions that I'm quickly trying to both summarize and group some things together, some nice ideas about teaching children at a young age to ask questions and being involved uh, in, in their own uh, thinking about their health and when they're at medical appointments. And uh, I love Robert Fisher's comment yeah. about teaching high school students right. oh, the yeah. basics of managing your own health. I love that idea, mm -hmm. Robert. Right. Um, some person is asking whatever happened to just walking out on a doctor and finding what you can work with. That, of course, is an option uh, if things are really bad. Right. Not everyone always feels that they have that option. And to that point, I wanted to ask, um, NPSF in this document has laid out a really wonderful, almost blueprint. This, these are the things we should all be working on. Resources, things that are can be helpful, toolkits, things that can help patients, things that can help clinicians engage in these um, types of conversations. Where do we turn? In some ways, it seems like it's everywhere right now. Do you have some sort of special favorite places right now that you would say uh, are good resources uh, for folks to start using and looking at? I think that um, Linda's organization has a lot of resources in terms of supporting clinicians and patients that have been involved in some kind of medical error, and I think that's incredibly important because it's a huge psychological burden for everyone. Um, I think that in the realm of uh, partnering with patients and families and designing patient-family faculty programs, I think that the Institute for Patient and Family-Centered Care has the best resources and guidebooks to doing that that I've ever seen, and they run incredible conferences and workshops that are specifically designed for healthcare organizations to actually bring their teams that include patients and families so that they can learn right there how to work better together because everyone needs orientation and to develop a new skill set to do this well. Um, I think that the Patient-Centered Outcomes Research Institute has created a lot of resources and tools that are helping investigators and their patient family advisors learn how to work together as partners in research and I think that's critically important. Um, Again, in my day job, I've had people say, well, if we're going to do a PCORI grant, doesn't that just mean we tell patients what research is? And it's like, no, um, they are part of your, your team. They are setting the aims. They are working with you on the research methodologies, the patient recruitment, everything. Right. And we've, we are doing that now, and it is remarkable how that transforms the whole process of research. Right. So I think those are excellent resources. I think that um, the Informed Medical Decisions Foundation has some excellent tools about that are designed for teaching clinicians how to engage in um, 
shared decision-making conversations. And I think at the very least, anything you can do to help people with motivational interviewing skills is very, very important in terms of patient engagement in general. And then IHI has millions of resources on the website around various tools and techniques as well as communication strategies. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Susan. And I, um, somebody, you ticked off a lot of really wonderful and useful sites and locations and whatever. And just so you know, we've, we've been thinking about this already and are capturing this for a resource document that will get posted to the website, IHI.org, uh, tomorrow, uh, rather than uh, constantly trying to just shed, um, paste all these links in here right now. But uh, have no fear, we are capturing them. Uh, we started off by saying um, that... It, you, you did, um, I think, Tejal and, and Susan both, that this is a document meant for any healthcare environment, that you really are trying to make it all-encompassing. And Tejal, maybe I'll ask you a couple comments here about feeling that long-term care facilities are sort of the sleeping giant, you know, or kind of the laggards in, in some way. And I, I don't mean to be casting, you know, aspersions there, but that the patient-family engagement piece and sort of an environment that feels in any way ramped up uh, to kind of in any way receive a document like this. What are your thoughts on that, and uh, does that require, do you think, some sort of special type of <laughs> emphasis in work? Well, I mean, I would say in general, ambulatory safety has been somewhat neglected compared to when we think about inpatient safety. Yeah. And so, and you know, I think that's long-term care is included there, but even rehabilitation facilities, dialysis centers, ambulatory surgical centers, I mean, all of these areas, if you look at the research that's out there, it's very limited in terms of what are the problems, and then also limited in terms of what interventions really work in those kinds of settings, um, what training uh, uh, the staff need in those kinds of settings, which are quite different from an inpatient setting. So, um, so you know, I agree that that's, these are areas where there probably needs to be some deep dive research into what could actually work, some work um, with leadership in those settings to understand what their specific challenges are, um, and then try to try to take a lot of these recommendations and fine-tune them to be specifically applicable to those settings. Yeah, I, I agree with Tejal that the ambulatory setting is kind of the, the new frontier, and I think that we have some really important and, and special challenges there in terms of the time factor because a lot of the things that we're talking about today around communication, around shared decision making and patient engagement take time and you can't do them in a 15 minute visit if you're lucky that it's 15 minutes when you've got to, medication reconciliation can take longer than that um, for people with complex chronic conditions so I think in part what that speaks to is the need for us to develop better approaches to team care, which we're seeing in the medical home model of care, um, but we need more people helping patients and helping the physician with things that they, they, all of this can't rest on the shoulders of doctors, and in fact, there are other staff that are actually much better at partnering with patients in some respects, that patients, there isn't the same power hierarchy, and people are more comfortable speaking up um, that, are, that are part of these new care teams. So I just want to add to that. Um, so uh, CMS, uh, you know, funds the quality improvement organizations in each state, and uh, I guess they're revamping their whole model. But they're just finishing up the tenth scope of work. Now it will go into the eleventh, and apparently, in this, there's going to be a lot more focus on patient and family centered care in long term. So uh, that's what they're going to be really focusing on. So that maybe there's some hope that that will change. I'm going to go ahead, uh, Susan and John. Why don't we throw this up, uh, the characteristics. Yeah, Susan. I, I just want to make one quick comment because yeah. I've been deeply involved in elder care for the past 10 years of various parents, and I actually have to say that I'm completely impressed with the care that my family members have gotten in long-term care, and people are much more willing to talk to them about their preferences, about what's important to them, to involve the family than I've experienced in hospital settings. And 
and I really think we the, our biggest challenge around the culture change is still in hospitals, mm-hmm. which is somewhat scary because that's where we're training everyone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's critically important that we think about that. So maybe there's some you know problematic assumptions that I didn't mean to contribute no, to no, any no, about no, long-term no, care. No. I think we well there's a real range of experiences, yeah. and on you yeah. know I think part of what we're also looking for is more reliability. So you know what you can expect. I wanted to put this up here: the characteristics of excellent patient family partners. We haven't talked about this so much, although it is in the document. And uh, please don't take this as I'm not trivializing at all. Patient family advisory councils are at some level all the rage right now. Everyone is talking about them, and we do see them as a certain you know avenue to beginning to get embedded and be involved. Can we talk a little bit, sort of honestly, does an awful lot ride a lot of what we're, you're talking about in this report on effective patient family advisory councils? Is that our avenue? Is that our sort of way in? Maureen, your thoughts on that? I don't know that that's the prime lever I would uh, use okay. to change culture. Um, I, I certainly think that it, it's how we hear the patient's voice that's the most important thing. I have served on a patient family advisory group uh, after my mother's death, and um, and I have to say the first few meetings were very nice dinner meetings where the patients and families listened a lot, but we didn't speak. And then I said, let's have our next meeting in the waiting room where I spent many nights sleeping on the floor, and having the patient and family advisory meeting there did provide some profound um, incentives to change, I think. But I, I wouldn't say it's the uh, the biggest driver. I think it's, yeah. to, to Susan's point, it's going back to the educational process. Um, it's this teaching empathy, teaching communication skills, as Linda was saying, uh, teaching safety science, as Tejal was saying. Um, and then it's every day leaders leading the way to hearing complaints and dealing with it immediately, to hearing the good things that are happening and giving uh, adequate rewards. And the patient and family committees, I think, is one way, but not the prime way, I would say. Evan, what do you what do you all think? Well, I was just going to add, too, that, you know, I've seen examples where there's a patient family committee and they meet, you know, once every few months and they have a nice conversation, but it's not ingraining patients and families into the whole fabric of the organization where patients and families are on improvement teams and in part of uh, uh, root cause analyses or whatever you want to do, but, you know, so you don't want to have it be this siloed committee that meets a few times a year, but doesn't really then, as you said, change the culture of having patients involved throughout the organization. I, I agree with that, and I also think that there are some practical considerations that are really important to think about, because if you are a small practice, it is time-consuming and it's not free to mount a whole patient family advisory council. And so for me, I think in my own work at the Stokel Center, where we found in some respects the most beneficial input from patients and families is simply going in, if we have educational materials or if we have a new program we're thinking about, we go sit in a waiting room of a practice and just talk to people right there and get their input. And at times, you know, when we have communications that we want to send out to our patients, we get them to review the materials. Sometimes we just send them to them and we talk to them on the phone. It markedly transforms what you do, but it's it's very practical, very effective, and it's very quick and easy. And I can also tell you that if we didn't do that, we would have wasted lots and lots of money on materials, programs that did not meet the mark for patients or the people don't even understand what they're being asked to do or what we're trying to communicate with them. But it's it's not a hugely time-consuming activity. So I think there are multiple levels where you can get patient and family input that fall well below creating a formal patient family advisory council. Well, I think that a lot, thank you, Susan and others, and I think a lot of people on the chat um, um, are really appreciating, I mean, we're having kind of a simultaneous <laughs> a conversation here where, where people's remarks, and I, again, want to remind everybody, you can download this chat at the end of, of the program when you log off, and it'll be posted to IHI.org. It's a great, rich resource. It goes along with the audio and the conversation. Somebody really loved using the waiting room time, um, uh, perhaps to illustrate what it's like to sleep on the floor, as well as an opportunity to find things out in real 
real time. People are very, very keen on this idea at the point of, you know, of encounter is some of the best uh, teaching moments. Linda? I'd like to give another example. So there's an organization in Massachusetts, MACRAME. It's called Massachusetts Alliance for Communication. Um, Apology resolution following medical harm or something. It's it's a long acronym, but anyway, it's a it's a um, an organization made up of multi stakeholders. So they're they've been um, creating materials now for patients. They've been working on the the staff and training and policies, and they uh, Beth Israel Deaconess as as the lead and Bay State Health Center. Any materials made for patients? What they do is they um, they go through their PFAC, but but what they've done is partner with an outside organization as you know use this for an example like mitts so yes they had some great feedback from their PFAC but now it goes to a, a, a select um, organization that has patients who have been directly affected by medical harm that are going to see this document in a very different way than you know the ordinary PFAC and, and if it can pass muster in both then you hit a home run and that's what they're doing but but not just kind of containing it just to the effect, right. but really going outside. And well, I think every hospital example. has communities. Yeah, that's a great example of healthcare organizations or systems partnering with community organizations yeah. that have this kind of expertise that they don't have. Yeah. Comment here from Connie Bishop, um, but as a federally qualified health uh, center, we are required to have at least um, 50% of patients on our board. And um, I, I don't know whether, I can't remember now if that comes up at all in terms of, uh, in the report itself, in terms of patient engagement on boards. Uh, it, it doesn't, but yeah. I've been involved with federally qualified health centers my entire career. I was a PA who worked in one. Um, and she's right, but they're there for a very different reason. Okay. And they're there as board members. So they're, they're the, the sort of the window, in my experience, into the what community needs are. And it's a very, very important role, but they're not necessarily being engaged in actually redesigning the way care is delivered. And I also think that... Um, you know, they don't necessarily, I mean, you need people to give you advice about exactly what the issue is you're working on. And sometimes the community board members, they may not even be patients at the center, or they may not even have a health problem that would give them insight into the experience of illness in a way that you need when you're getting this kind of input. But they may be very powerful people. Oh, they're very, yeah, they're, they're <laughs> windows and they're very powerful people in the community. But it's a different purpose in my experience. Although we do have um, Helen Haskell on our board who represents yeah. patients and families. And I will say that at every board meeting, having Helen there, having Helen voice the perspective right. of the patient family, it draws out the patient and family experiences for all of oh, the board yeah. members. Yeah. And so I think it's a very um, important role to play. That for, yeah. Right, exactly. A, a patient, a real patient versus somebody, a community member, which I think... Right, and the community could be the head of the YMCA. Right, it's what you're there for. I mean, right. you know, Linda's been on the NPSF board, Helen's on our board as well, but I think the, the role on the board is to represent that patient voice, whereas it might be slightly different. different. Yeah. Yeah. So one thing, um, and um, I, I'm, you know, taking the privilege of being the host, I mean the moderator here, just asking a question. I didn't find, because um, we are, uh, I want to give everybody a chance to um, say some parting words and a quick uh, mention of something from John. I didn't find any mention, I could be wrong here, of patient satisfaction or patient's experience scores in this document. And I think that's very telling because I think part of what we're all dealing with in this environment right now, in the healthcare environment, is these things start to get interchanged and we're talking about engaging with patients and families so that you might also, just by the way, improve your you know patient experience and satisfaction scores. So I, I'm not, I hope that's not too controversial, but I'm, I'm curious it's, about it's that. It's not controversial yeah. at all. I think yeah. that, um, no, it's controversial whether we should see Avoiding it or not. Yeah, it's not controversial for me, uh, I should say. Yeah. But we did not want one of the, the lines that we walked in writing this paper is we did not want this to be the summa theologica of patient engagement or, you know, improving the patient's experience of care. We really wanted to keep the focus on safety. And in the 
paper, there is a section on what are the benefits of patient engagement where we have references about the relationship between patient experience of care and its relationship to outcomes, to safety, and whatever. Um, But we didn't want that to be the main focus. But I will say that one of the people that participated in the roundtable was Saul Weingart, who at the time was the safety officer at Dana-Farber, and he's now the chief medical officer at Tufts. And he has done some really elegant research studies looking at the relationship between patient experience of care, people that tend to speak up more, and, and their experience with errors. And basically what he's found is that people that are more engaged in their care, that do speak up, either themselves or their family members that are with them or friends, have higher patient experience scores, and they have fewer errors. And that's the kind of evidence. I mean, that's a home run. And that's the kind of evidence and that's the kind of research we need to be doing more of to make these connections. Thank you, Susan. So, John, you want to make a a brief mention and then we'll start to wrap up. Yeah, of course. Thanks, Madge. Uh, Well, we've got a great conversation today about committing to patient safety. um, And I think everybody in the room would agree that that commitment starts with leadership. Uh, That's why we're inviting you to participate in IHI's Patient Safety Executive Development Program, an intensive seven-day program designed to prepare those responsible for safety to be leaders of strong and effective patient safety programs. You'll be exposed to concepts and learning that IHI has gained through years of guiding organizations in their quest for safety, and you'll work with expert faculty to develop and refine detailed, customized strategies and implementation plans for your organization. The Patient Safety Executive Development Program will be held this September right here in Cambridge, Massachusetts. For more information, visit IHI.org or reach out to us, reach out to us at info at IHI.org. Thank you, John. All right. Well, let's uh, go around the horn. I'll start with you, Maureen, uh, kind of parting shots and maybe something to think about uh, as we go forward. Just a very practical bit of advice, and that is every Monday morning when we have IHI staff meeting, we tell a story about a patient to keep us all grounded in the meaning of our work. And I think sometimes it's so easy to get distracted by the other things in life, and I bring it back to that patient story. Thank you, Maureen. I want to take a moment to thank IHI for hosting this uh, WIHI today on our white paper, Um, Safety is Personal. We really appreciate it, and I um, just would encourage those on the uh, who are listening in who haven't read the report uh, to read it. It really does have um, a great summary of, of the state of the field and also some really practical tools and, and tips for how to get started. It's a long journey that we have ahead of us, but I think the report hopefully is a first step in, in getting there. Thank you. Susan. I also want to thank IHI for sponsoring this. I think it's been a terrific um, conversation. I can't wait to see the chat notes. And, um, <laughs> one quick comment that I will make and that kind of follows up on what Maureen was saying Um, If you're having trouble getting your leaders to really take this to heart, um, one of the things that I have seen be very effective is conducting interviews with your own staff Mm -hmm. about their experiences getting care in your organization. And I don't care what the setting is because... When I have done this and other have talked to others who've done this, the same issues that our patients are bringing to us come up with our own staff members, mm-hmm. even when they're in leadership, clinical leadership roles, and the lack of, of empowerment, the fear, and the same problems. And when you hear it from your colleagues, I think it has a slightly different impact. Um, they're not mere mortals that you can sort of dismiss when you're just looking at patient experience data or whatever. And those stories are very rich and they're very humbling. All right. Thank you very much. Linda? I think, I think too, the report is a great read, and I like that you just um, took the best of what's out there and put it together and synthesized it. That, that, that's great. That's what we did. Uh, I want to say quickly, I wish every, every leader would have the courage to do what you did and meet with a patient who's been harmed because currently... Mm-hmm. They don't meet. You'd never, um, I think it's patient-family relations or whatever. It's a lower level. You never reach. And I think that would maybe change culture quicker than anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, this has been a fabulous panel. Um, Maureen Bisignano has been here, Tejal Gandhi, Susan um, Edgman-Levitan, and Linda Kenny are wonderful 
audience here. Uh, you've been just fabulous, uh, sort of simultaneous uh, conversants here on the chat. I hope we got to at least some of your questions. Remember, the resource uh, document will be posted to IHI.org tomorrow with a lot of things that were mentioned today, as well as the audio and the chat as well, and all the slides we shared today. Next up on WIHI on May 22nd, uh, in collaboration with the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, we have a special show, The Patient-Centered Medical Home, Early Results, Tough Scrutiny. We're going to take a hard look, as some re recent research did, on uh, what we're gaining and what maybe uh, some of the challenges are uh, to get the most out of the concept and the actual operation of a patient-centered medical home. Again, you can download everything uh, as you get off the show today. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org. You can also check out some comments on our Facebook page. We have a great group who helped make WIHI possible. They include Mike Sweeney, Jameson Case, Jesse McCall, Alan Olison, Vicki Minden, John Gothier, Jane Rossner, Val Weber, Matt Morse, and Tala Al-Gussain. It's my privilege, as always, to host a program that's about spirited learning and improving health and patient care for most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Good day, everyone. <laughs>